Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10 will be near the end of the chapter. Continuing tonight, as we did on Sunday mornings, looking at reasons Jesus was born, um, different reasons throughout Scripture that Jesus came. We said that there's, um, <laughs> we could do a whole year on these and still not cover them all, but, but we're covering some really important ones, um, some that are shocking, some that are pretty, knowledge, that, that we know pretty well, um, and, and so tonight's one of those that might be a little shocking. Um, would you do something you know to be wrong for $20? Maybe forge a document, maybe not something, you know, don't, not killing anybody, but something, you know, small that is wrong, that you know is wrong, it's not a gray area, um, what would you do it for $20? Maybe forge a document, maybe spoil someone you love's reputation, maybe steal something from a gas station. How about $100? Would you do it for $100? How about $10,000? How about a million dollars? How about $10 million, your dream house, and the certainty that you would have a healthy life for the rest of your life and die peacefully in your sleep at 98 years old? I wonder if any of those rewards or any level that I hit there was enough to make you be willing to do something wrong, not like that. Do you see how different levels of value can cause you to possibly part with something that is important to you, like in this scenario, your ethics? Um, you, you probably wouldn't steal something from a gas station for $100, but if someone said, I'll give you a million if you go take that gum off the shelf and walk out of the gas station, you might think about it. You might think about it. Jesus is going to teach in this passage tonight um, something similar to, to what I just laid out to you, but, but not a, a bad thing like that, not, not stealing something, not doing something wrong. He's going to make us um, question what we value the most. What is most valuable to us? He's going to um, teach us um, that, that Jesus is going to teach in this passage tonight that one of the reasons he came was to make you part with something that is important to you, make you be willing to uh, weigh what, what you value most. And so Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his own father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. <clears throat> we often talk about peace on earth at Christmas time. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Um, that comes from Luke chapter 2 when the angels announce peace on earth, goodwill to men. The, the Savior is born in the city of David. Um, but the phrase has also become a cultural phrase for, for Christmas time, whether people are Christian or not. They know Christmas time is peace on earth, goodwill to men. Um, people who don't believe in Jesus talk about peace on earth at Christmas time. Um, we were in Moultrie. We went to Moultrie Thanksgiving night um, for, uh, we didn't have our family get together on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving night, they light the city up with Christmas lights. So they have the entire courthouse strung up with Christmas lights, and they light it up. It's a big festival downtown. And we went there, and I was walking through, and they're, they're playing like, they're not just playing Christmas carols on the radio throughout the city. They're playing like modern Christmas worship music that I've heard on the radio. And I looked at Adrian, and I said, you know, it's, it's really cool that at Christmas time, people just blast, you know, worship hymns over the radio in the city you know, in the city square, and everyone's just okay with it. <laughs> I mean, there, there's songs that are proclaiming the, the kingship of Christ, playing through Moultrie, and there's plenty of people around here that are probably not Christians, but they're okay with it because it's Christmas time, and it's Christmas music. We'll get to peace on earth next week. This week, Jesus explicitly says, I did not come to bring peace. He says, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide, he says. A sword is a violent symbol. It is a violent symbol. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to put a wall up between people. He doesn't say, I've come to, um, I've come to place people on the opposite side of the world from each other. No, he says, I've come to bring a sword. What is a sword used for? To cut in half. To cut in half. Jesus is saying, I came to slice in half. And when you slice something in half with a sword, you usually can't put it back together in any real sense, can you? If I'm at war with a sword and I chop off somebody's arm, it doesn't go back on. Like there's no way to make it attach again, right? If I chop a piece of wood in half with an axe or, you know, whatever, I can screw those two pieces of wood back together, but they're no longer one piece of wood. They're now two pieces of wood attached together. If I cut a piece of meat in half... I can't put it back together. Now, I can take those two pieces of meat and, you know, melt them together with a piece of cheese in the middle. You know, I can, I can take the meat and grind it up into a ball of ground meat, and it's then together, but it's not the same thing anymore. It's separated. Jesus says, I have come to bring a sword. I did not come to bring peace, he says. I came to bring a sword. That's a very shocking statement when we think of who Jesus is. We never think of Jesus saying such a thing as this. He goes on to describe one way that he's talking about, and it's not that he's just singling out family here. Family is just the, uh, the analogy he uses of how this plays out, of how the sword that he brings um, plays out. Jesus says he came to divide a family against each other. He says, I've come to set, verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That doesn't take much work, but um, sorry, that, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> I've come to set these people against each other. The entire household, he says, a person's entire household will be their enemies. This is bonkers. Why is Jesus saying this? This isn't right. This is not the Christmas I think of. 
Christmas is about bringing families together, although I've seen quite a few family get-togethers end in people separating like a sword. Um, but, but this is not what I think of when I think of Christmas, family members being divided and enemies against each other. Understand, following Jesus brings peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But following Jesus may bring conflict with other people. It may bring conflict with other people. Why might the coming of Jesus divide families? Think to yourself. Well, when people begin to come to Jesus, it is going to disrupt their family. It is going to disrupt their family. That's why this may be confusing for some of you, because you have a Christian family. Everybody in your family is a Christian. So all of your family follows Jesus, so they're all on the same trajectory. So you probably won't see this as much as somebody else. When a family is completely filled with non-Christians and one of the family members gets saved, it disrupts the family. It stirs up the pot. Suddenly, that saved family member is getting up early on Sunday morning and going to church and trying to get everyone else to come with them when they just want to sleep. That They're telling fellow family members their lifestyles are sinful. They're trying to get the rest of the family saved. No, no long, they're no longer participating in some of the things the family does. And the family members are going to begin to not like that very much. This is going to range anywhere from disagreement to persecution. We know the examples of persecution. You know, a, a man in a Muslim country who um, comes to faith in Christ and almost immediately upon baptism, um, it, it's very common for his family will, to disown him or have him killed. That's very common. A father will literally say, you're dead to me, son, and send him off to be killed. It's very common. It's as if they think their son died the minute he became a Christian. The sword of Jesus comes in that family. It's not Jesus being evil or literally trying to cut people asunder. No, it's that when Jesus changes a person, it naturally causes differences to happen between people. It does. But more often, especially for us, it's not going to be persecution with our family. It's going to be disagreement. A Christian businessman feels called to leave his multi-million dollar business, where he has really good benefits, and go pastor a small church in the middle of nowhere. He executes that plan. He goes for it. And his family members tell him, you are not providing for your family. You, you're, you, you're not giving your kids a good future by taking all that from them. Or perhaps a child comes out as gay, and the Christian parents tell them, I love you, and you will always have a home here, but we will not celebrate your lifestyle. Or perhaps a Christian daughter sees her parents go through an unbiblical divorce and says, Mom, Dad, I love you, and I'll never stop loving you and coming around here, but I'll never be okay with this divorce. It violates Scripture. Following Jesus is going to sometimes put you head-to-head -head with your family. And in those moments, you have to choose, are you going to be faithful to Christ, or are you going to cave to your family? That's why Jesus says here, look at what he says in verse 37. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's why Jesus says, if you love your family more than him, you are not worthy of him. 
You cannot be his disciple, he would say in other places. You know, I love my wife and my son, but if I ever let my love for them be higher than my love for Christ, my life will crumble in the process. And I will actually hurt them in the process. Because if I don't love Christ the most, I will not pursue what he wants for their lives, and thus I will not love them correctly. I won't. The temptation, even in Christian families, is going to be to give family first place in your life rather than Christ. The division doesn't always happen in a family of believers and non-believers, where some members are believers and some are non-believers. Sometimes it happens to believing families, where everybody's a Christian. So a seven-year-old boy wants to play on a sports team that is going to keep him out of church 43 Sundays of the year. And his Christian father says to him, son, I love you. You'll have to find a different sports team than the one that's going to keep you out of church that much. And the son screams, that's not fair. The father says, you may not see it as fair, but I know what's best for you. Or perhaps it's a Christian teenager who comes to a parent one day and says, Mom, I really, wanna, I really want to and I really feel like God wants me to go on a mission trip outside of this country. And the parent has to be willing to consider it. Not just immediately shut it down because you want your child to be safe. They have to be willing to consider that. Is God calling them to go? If he is, the parent has to be willing to let Jesus keep the child safe in obedience to Jesus by them going on that mission trip. Or I'll even see it in um, people doing what sometimes they, they innocently do and don't even realize what, that they're doing it. Um, so sometimes I'll hear the phrase, well, I was always raised that fill in the blank, or my dad always taught me that fill in the blank. And then they'll say something that really doesn't line up with scripture. It's just something they don't like. Usually something going on in church or something like that. I don't like that. Well, my dad always taught me that's not what you're supposed to do in church. Um, because their family taught them that their whole life, they hold it up as the authority of the Bible, and it's not. Your family does not get to assume the authority of God and say what's right and wrong. If they say something opposite of what Scripture says, we listen to Scripture every time. The sword of Jesus causes that division to happen. It does. We do not deny what Jesus tells us to do because it might upset our family. We will love our family best, when we follow Jesus completely. If we do not follow Jesus in order to please our family, we teach our children that's what we do. And then our children do that as well. And that's what they teach their children. And generation after generation, it gets less and less Christian until the entire family doesn't even know who God is, all because of our little neglects of obedience. We don't just have the sword come in our own family, though. We have it come in our life. That's verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This kind of division with family is just one example of what our devotion to Jesus should look like. Now it goes all the way to our entire lives. He's saying this um, encompasses every bit of our lives. He says, take, you've got to take up your cross. Uh, Jewish people would have known what that meant. They would have known what that meant. The, the cross wasn't something you got tattooed on your arm or a necklace that you wore or something like that. If, if you were, were going to be carrying a cross, you were going to your execution. 
That's what the cross was. It was a Roman torture device. It's what they used to drain every drop of blood out of a criminal to make an example so that other people wouldn't commit that crime. Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to die for me, you're not worthy of me. That's what he says in verse 38. If you're not willing to take your cross and come after and follow me, you're not worthy of me. If you're not willing to lose your entire life for my sake, you're not a follower of me. He says, you have two options before you. You have two options. Save your life for yourself or sacrifice your life for Jesus. Save your life for yourself. That is, I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to make myself happy. I deserve a good life. I'm a good person. I'm going to do what's best for me. That's the first option. Second option, sacrifice your life to Christ. Christ gets to say what, what I do in everything. I submit to him no matter what. He gets to determine my steps. He determines what my life is about. Where he goes, I will go. What he says, I will do. Where he leads, I will follow. I will follow his word on the big things and on the small things. If his word says something that doesn't sit well with me, I will recognize that I am in the wrong and I will wrestle with it until I can finally swallow it. I will not make excuses for why I am exempt from obeying him. You know, I'm just trying to do what's best for my family, or I'm just in a season right now where it's more difficult to do this or that, or I can't read my Bible every day because reading is boring for me. How do you get to this place where Christ is worth dying for? Well, I, th I think in our context, it's recognizing you probably won't have to die for Christ on this earth. Where we're at in America, you probably won't have to die for Jesus. You're going to have a little bit harder task. In America, you're going to have to live for Jesus. You're going to have to live for him. You're not going to have to die for him. You're going to have to daily, every single day, live for him. That's more difficult. We don't think that's more difficult, but that's more difficult. Because dying for Jesus is a one-time decision that you have to make. Living for him is a daily decision. You have to make grind after grind, year after year, for the rest of your life. It's daily dying rather than just dying one time. You have to choose to put yourself to death and live for what he wants. Let me, I've got two charts here I'm going to show you to kind of explain what this looks like. So this is how most people think the Christian life works. We have a list of priorities. Jesus is number one. Our spouse is number two, our kids are number three, our fam the rest of our family is number four, work is fifth, etc., whatever's next. That's how most people think the Christian life works. That's not how the Christian life works. That that's not how the Christian life works, because in that, Jesus has nothing to do with the rest of these areas. It has nothing to do with your spouse, your kids, your family, your work, whatever. That's not how it works. If, you, if we follow this first model, each part of our life has nothing to do with the other parts of it. No. This is how the Christian life works. Something is at the center of my life. And whatever I put at the center of my life, everything else submits to it. I put Jesus at the center of my life. He determines my family life, my work life, what I do with my kids, my spouse, my hobbies, my friends, etc., if I take one of these things and put it there at the center, 
that determines everything. If I put my kids at the middle, my kids determine what Jesus does in my life. My kids determine my relationship with my spouse. My kids determine my relationship with my work. If I put work at the center, work determines how I love my spouse, how I love my kids, how much I follow Jesus. Do you get the idea? You put something at the center of your life. Is it Jesus? That's how the Christian life works. Whatever you put at the center has a relationship with everything else around it. Understand, Christ came to bring a sword. That's what he says. He came to bring a sword. Your allegiance to him will cause some divisions in your life. It will. And when those divisions come, you will either cling closer to him and lose something here on earth, or you will ignore him and cling to something on this earth and lose him in the process. Or, in the way he puts it, verse 39, you may find your life and lose it, or you may lose your life and find it. This Christmas season, I ask you, consider which side of the sword are you on and what is at the center of your life. Let's pray. Lord, you have these sayings in Scripture that are hard to swallow and, and hard to understand. Lord, we've always thought of Christmas as peace on earth, and it certainly is. You came to make all things right on earth. You came to reconcile. You came to um, re restore the world to what it's supposed to be. But in the process of doing that, those who follow you will, may not have peace right now. They may have a sword. They may have to divide. They may have to have division come between them and, and people they love or things that they want, or parts of their life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful when those crossroads come for us. I pray that Christ would be at the center of our life in everything. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow you, help us to remain obedient to you, and help us to do all things that please you this Christmas season and for the rest of our days. Lord, none of us will probably have to die for you here on this earth, but we will have to live for you.